0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. If you want to tell people the big news...
2: Hello and welcome to the Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game, and just for today, urges you to listen quietly. My birthday celebrations have taken their toll. I'm Kevin Day. These Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, what's it like never having a hangover?
1: Well, by definition, I wouldn't actually know, would
2: I? Because I don't have That's true. Yeah, but knowing in detail what happened the night before must be must be horrible. Kieran,
1: <laughs> I'm absolutely horrible to go on cricket tour with.
2: Oh my because Lord. I
1: do take notes.
2: <laughs> and use them, if necessary. Look, Kieran, it's, um, it's newsday day, Kieran, but there's a very important question uh, to get through first, which is, have you stopped sulking about Line of Duty yet?
1: Um, yes, I think my initial reaction was, well, that was a bit of a damp squib. And the more I've reflected on it, the more I think it was actually a piece of genius uh-huh. by Jed, Jed. McLaurin and, and the team, um, in the sense that uh, it's a bit like the ending of The Sopranos, in that it, it's mysterious, and also it was saying that uh, corruption is endemic and it's taking place in full sight, and we're not even aware of it, and it's 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 not the Machiavellian, uh, you know, evil person in an island hollowed out stroking a black, but you know, stroking a white cat. James Bond type of corruption that exists in society today. So, yes, I've I've completely I've I've, gone, I've done a complete one eighty on that. Uh, okay, because you were very angry. Corruption is endemic, says man who
2: takes notes during cricket tours and uses them <laughs> <laughs> for later purposes. That's probably how Swiss Ramble got to be top of his tree. Uh, Later in this episode, you were angry, Kieran. You nearly ruined my birthday with your your anger about Line of Duty. Uh, Later in this episode, we'll be hearing from Amanda Jacks, who's a fans advocate at the Football Supporters Association. And the first news story will definitely be on the agenda, I imagine. Well, I know. It was. We've already spoken to her. Um, Tensions get very confused on this show, Kieran, don't they? (laughs) Um, So, obviously, Kieran, the continuing fallout from the Manchester United fans' protest on Sunday. You've been looking at the numbers behind United's debt, but specifically, can I ask you how much that postponement
1: would have cost Manchester United? I think in football terms, it, it's it's not significant. Clearly, they will now have to um, recruit uh, stewards for another event. They now have, I think, three three matches to play in five or six days. Um, in the final week of the season, I think it's Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday. So that that's going to put extra pressure on things from a playing perspective. But they've already qualified for the Champions League. I think they'll be focusing on um, the Europa League final. Um, so uh, the costs won't be significant. Um, they'll have to find themselves some uh, buy, buy some new footballs because, in true Mancunian Scally style, um, some of the uh, some some of the youth decided to uh, abscond with a number of footballs, which actually took uh, actually took the number of balls on, on the premises to below Quarrett for the match to take place. So they'd have had to get some from Carrington. Um, but other than that, it won't, it won't be a significant cost. It's it's more of an embarrassment issue that uh, the Manchester United failed to take suitable precautions for this to take place because I knew what was going to happen. Yeah, you know, I, I I speak to people in Manchester. It was it was yeah. open open secret there was going to be uh, quite a few people there, um, and uh, so therefore they should have reacted accordingly.
2: Yeah, hats off to them if their plan was to reduce the number of balls to a to, to a level where they couldn't actually start the game off. And also, grudging respect to Sky for not noticing that some of the balls, along with other missiles, were heading in the direction of the. Yeah, but it's it's. <laughs> I, it's getting slightly odd that Sky are suddenly trying to turn themselves into fans' advocates. Kieran. and I, I'd, I can't recall Martin Tyler ever saying, "Here we are at the Amex on eight o'clock on a Monday evening. It's Brighton Newcastle, and we're live. And we apologise for making the Newcastle fans have to travel three hundred miles on a Monday night." But there mm. you go. And <laughs> and as for Roy Keane accusing Man United's owners of being arrogant, and then in the same breath saying what Man United have to do is go and get Jack Grealish and Tony... Um, uh, Tony Kane? Um, <laughs> I've got, which? You're, you're, you're 60, Kevin. You can get away with this now. You know, it's terrible, isn't it? <coughs> Harry Kane. Tony, who's Tony Kane? <laughs> <coughs> Defeats the whole point of the righteous anger, doesn't it? I can't even remember what I'm being righteously indignant about. But in terms of um, United's debt, Kieran, how, how, what are we looking at at the moment? Just to put the to put the demonstration into context and as you know and as we'll talk about with Amanda there's a slightly different context to the united demonstration than there is perhaps to the the fans opposed to the rest of the the, the big 5 and their super league breakaway
1: well when manchester united were first acquired by the glazer family they uh, they borrowed you know, just just shy of 700 million pounds uh, in terms of uh, funding in, in what's referred to as a leverage buyout, and I think what uh, irritates Manchester United fans is that they've effectively had an interest-only mortgage mm-hmm. uh, since the since the acquisition by the Glazers, and it works out that for for every one pound of, of net transfer spend since two thousand and five, Manchester United have spent eighty pence of that in interest. So yeah, it's it's not. It's not a very productive way of dealing with the money. You know, eight, £837 million, pounds, however you try to dress it up, and I'm sure the club will try to put a positive spin on this, you know, saying, mm. oh, you know, bank, bankers need sympathy too. You know, they're a, they, 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 they get picked upon at school. Um, that uh, it, it's been justified. Certainly, in the early years of the Glazer ownership, when they were paying out over one hundred million pounds a year, and they, and they were borrowing at credit card rates at up to fourteen and a quarter percent, it was it was it was pretty hairy time financially. But they've they've renegotiated the loans. I, I don't actually, as, as an outsider, have an issue with the debt or, or the servicing of the debt. Um, now it's the fact that it's uh, it, it's a legacy issue and I know the word legacy is something which we probably <clears throat> frown upon given that it's been tainted by Florentino Perez mm. um, but it's an awful lot of money to go out and uh, you know United fans will say well we're not delivering on the pitch and we're having to watch Manchester United from an old Trafford where the roof leaks and we're still expected to pay top dollar for that you know, why isn't money being spent on the infrastructure well, it's gone into the pockets of bankers. It's as simple as that.
2: Yeah, you can't help feeling that the Glazers are now paying the price for years of neglect of the normal fan because it's been one of the themes of this podcast that Manchester United don't really care what their their everyday fans, for want of a better word, what the, all they worry about is those fans who are travelling for their one and only game at Old Trafford who probably won't notice that the roof's leaking who just want their photographs with the statues and who just want to spend probably a thousand pounds in the club shop to take home as souvenirs they're the fans that the Glazers are, are worrying about and the families from Salford and from Manchester who save up and get their names on season ticket lists to get a ticket who when they do as you say notice that there's a run-down stadium notice that the infrastructure's falling apart to such an extent that it's no longer on UEFA's list of, of stadia for European finals, which is a terrible state of events, really. We're talking about Manchester United here, whatever you feel about them. It's one of the most famous clubs in the world, let alone in England.
1: Entirely. And and it does now seem that uh, there's been simmering resentment for the tenure of the Glazer ownership, but mm. they, they now seem to be more coordinated Um, There's talk in Manchester of... Well, if the Glazers aren't going to listen to us, and, and clearly they're not, uh, the the attitude of the of Joel Glazer is that he wasn't prepared to to sit in on a on a on a meeting with the Manchester United Supporters Trust last week. Uh, he was uh, he was con- it was uh, approached by a uh, I think a reporter from Sky to say, "Do you want to apologise to the fans? Anything you want to say?" He just he just you know, I'm I'm not talking to anybody. Mm. Um, so if if the Glazers aren't prepared to acknowledge that they're the problem let's deal with some people who perhaps do see potentially the glazers of the problem so Manchester United fans are now talking let's boycott Adidas let's boycott yeah. tag let's let's deal with team viewer Manchester United's new front of shirt sponsor who are paying you know the thick end of 50 million pounds a year for the privilege so what are the United fans doing and again hats off to Mancunians or. As my mother used to refer to me when I lived in Manchester for forty years, as a Manchurian, uh, which was cause caused great confusion. Great confusion. The first time I went back to my mum's village on the West Coaster in Mayo um, with my family, and and she told the whole village, "I've got I've got a, uh, I've, I've, you know, my, my son's lived in Manchester and he, and he's uh, he's uh, he's married a local Manchurian girl." <laughs> so so I turn up and uh, and, and all the neighbours are looking around, going, "What what's what, what going on here?" Um but uh what what the uh what what in true Manx style, and Manchester is a truly wonderful city, um they've they've gone on to trust Pilot and they are giving TeamViewer as many one-star reviews yeah. as they can because they're saying, Okay, Manchester United is a fantastic football club, and we've already established, you know, the the achievements under Sir Matt and Sir Alex have been absolutely amazing. Um and anybody that was around in the sixties, but when football was slightly different, you know, uh Best best Charlton and and so on. Mm. Um well the glazers are the problem. So this is the, this is this is it, Adidas. this is it, tag. Um get rid of the glazers and uh we won't boycott your products and we won't give you really rubbish reviews. Remember, there's there's a billion of us on the planet, Manchester yeah. United are yeah. more than happy to say that. Well, mm. let's now get the thoughts of a billion angry fans. Um and 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 if that happens then the then it's likely that the sponsors will will talk to the club and say I think we've got a bit of a problem here and it needs to be addressed.
2: Yeah, interesting, Kieran. I know this is not specifically football finance, so for once, I'm actually I'm going to say I'm enjoying myself because I love doing the pod. But it's nice for us to get a chance to talk about issues um, around more general football, as we do indeed with Amanda later on. But it's interesting how the mainstream media for the first time, really, are giving fans a voice as well. And it was interesting that Andy Mitten was on uh match the day two on Sunday night from the Man United Supporters Trust, I believe, and a, um, a well-known Manchester journalist. Sky, of course, uh, all over fans. Uh, three years ago, and I don't care what Sky is saying now, three years ago, they would have been demanding that the police were called to clear those people off the streets to make sure the game kicked off. And now, even they've realised that they have to at least pay lip service to what the fans are doing. And that can only be... A good thing to be perfectly honest can't it
1: yes yeah um and and also sky have to work that little bit harder these days for people to renew their subscriptions because we have reached peak premier league in in terms of viewing figures uh the amount of money that sky have paid for the existing deal is down by 10 percent and sky have got new owners and perhaps they are having a a change of culture. You know, we we've both been fortunate enough to to go to Sky Studios, and and the people there are pretty fantastic. So, um, you know, in, in my experience, so you know, perhaps that they, they are thinking, hold on, we we've got this big stakeholder group in the shape of the fans. Um, if if the football clubs are taking them for granted, well, you know, perhaps we should uh, take a different approach.
2: Uh, I can vouch for that. The people who work for Sky, the people who put the TV programs on the, the football people are fantastic it is without doubt one of the most depressing buildings I've ever been to in the world mm. and, yep. and the levels of security that are unnecessary to do a, <laughs> a five-minute interview on a Saturday morning with Jim White um Premier League clubs, have you ever been to Manchurian but I'm just just I was, was half hoping that at the end of that Manchurian statement you'd say of course I did have a Manchurian girlfriend At the time, but...
1: No, no, sadly not. No, no, she was from Oldham.
2: (laughs) I don't know why that's funny, Kieran. Just the word Oldham (laughs) is funny to a man (laughs) of my age. Uh, Premier League clubs, Kieran, will be required to sign up to a new owner's charter with, and I quote, significant sanctions for breaches of rules.
1: Yes, so uh, there's no detail on this. I, I think this will be, as we speak... Being poured over by lawyers uh, from the Premier League, it will be uh, drafts will be distributed to clubs to see whether they want how they want to respond. But the I think the broad issue is that um, there will be uh, effectively a new rule book, which will have specific issues with regards to open competition. Uh, which clearly uh, is a, is a dig at the uh, yeah. Super League franchise uh, organisation um, about withdrawing from competition, uh, such as uh, yeah the, the Champions League, from acting in good faith towards all the other members of the Premier League. So it was it was openly uh, being uh, undertaken by the the G6 clubs, the greedy six, that they would have their own separate meetings uh, during uh, or, or before the, the Premier League chief executive meetings. They did literally go off into a different room and then come yep. back, you know, grinning like Cheshire cats together. Um, and I think this type of behaviour, when you are supposed to be acting on behalf of all members, remember, the the Premier League TV deal should have been signed off by now. Why has it not been signed off? It's because the greedy six kept finding excuses to delay and delay. Why were they doing that? Because they were operating on behalf of a different competition to the Champions League. So you know, Sky and BT and the other senior business partners or, or broadcasting partners, they pay money to the Premier League because part of the excitement is, are you going to finish in the top four? Now, The old-fashioned fan in us is going, well, it shouldn't be the top four. It should be the championships, but it should be the champions. But let's set that aside. It is the top four these days that everybody gets excited about. That drives viewing figures. If you take that away, then they're selling a different product to the domestic broadcasters, and they were not being honest, these Mm. people. And therefore, if they behave in such a way, again, they should be subject to sanctions. Now, how those sanctions will manifest themselves, we don't know. Separately, there is an FA inquiry into the behaviour of these six clubs, and we just have to see where we end up. Um, my, my big fear is that there'll be some type of compromise deal signed, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm firmly of the belief um, that has been proven in football time and time again that self-regulation is not working mm-hmm. well and mm-hmm. there must be a better alternative.
2: The, the problem is, Kieran. If these significant sanctions are financial. They're not
1: going to hurt the top six clubs, are they? Well, they, they're not going to—they're not going to hurt Manchester City or Chelsea to the same extent as the others because um, they've, they've got a different ownership model. They could still hurt the clubs involved. Um, it, it could, they, the, the FA could make things really awkward as well. Um, so it, it could be some form of football sanctions, such as similar to what we have uh, for the uh, England Rugby (coughs) Union team. If Mm. you choose to play your domestic game in a different competition, do so with with our best wishes. By the way, the only people who are entitled to play for the England football team are players who are available to play in the Champions League, Mm. should their club so qualify. And there, there you've got a solution. And and then it's up to the players to make that decision or to put pressure on the clubs. And to be fair, the players did put pressure on the clubs and so did the managers. And everybody that stood up against this monstrosity has to be applauded. Mm.
2: It's been a a good week for Manchester City, Kieran, playing magnificently to beat Paris and Palace. Um, In fact, we amused ourselves during the game on Saturday, Kieran, by imagining a couple of of hard-of-hearing Man City squad players thinking they had being told they are going to play against Paris, and then Pep said, no, no, Palace, you're playing against Palace. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Oh. Um, and they were, my God, they were good last... We are recording this on Wednesday. They were fantastic against Paris Saint-Germain last night and fully deserve yeah. to be in the final, without a doubt. But on Monday, Kieran, you hinted there was a mysterious legal case by the Premier League against Manchester City. Any
1: more details on that? Yeah, this is this is a really strange one. Um as well as uh, having no life and collecting every set of football accounts that gets published um I, like, is it like panini stickers Kieran
2: are you are you, are you waiting there would you do swaps with some are you in Swiss Ramble on the phone going <laughs> i've got two sheffield wednesdays can i can i have you got a notts county I dream of having a
1: conversation with the
2: Swiss. <laughs> he, re- he refuses to talk to us. Maybe he's just waiting for me to. Maybe he he picks up the phone. He sees Kieran Mcguire, and producer guy, and thinks no. Maybe he's just waiting for the day that
1: I phone him. And go all right, Swiss. You're right, Swiss. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, it, on top of that, I also get a, a daily list of court cases mm. um, from uh, from a government agency. Uh, most of which are, you, you know, cheeseburger versus uh, Wycliffe or something. You know, it's spectacularly dull. Or your um, family. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Megan versus Harry. <laughs> um, but on the 20th of April, um, a, a, something came <clears> into my <throat> inbox. And I thought, oh, this seems really interesting. It appeared to be uh, a case uh, actually from Manchester City versus the Premier League and... A and other, A and other wasn't, uh, wasn't detailed, and it was talking about some form of court case which was due to be held in private, and uh, nobody was allowed to attend, and uh, it wasn't necessarily going to be published, and all seemed very intriguing. So I got quite excited about that, and then the following day, it disappeared from mm. the, the government website. So I don't know whether the judge had said, whether well, it's going to be held in private, you know, why are we publicising this, this very fact? Um, and uh, you know, because of Super League and other things, it went off my radar. But um, there was a report uh, by Nick Harris on Mail Online on Sunday. And also there's been a report by Tarek Panger in the New York Times today, um, which, which appears to indicate that the, the Premier League is still following up um, issues to do with Manchester City and financial fair play. Now, the the premier league's uh, rules in terms of financial fair play are slightly different to that of uefa you are allowed to lose more money um but i think one of the critical things is that um under uefa's rules there is a statute of limitations in that evidence cannot be more than 5 years old in the case of any charges which are held and this what this did form part of manchester city's defence uh, against UEFA when when Manchester City successfully defended the charges under the Premier League rules there appear to be no such statute of limitations so therefore evidence which would not have been acceptable to a UEFA investigation is deemed to be uh, is deemed to be valid as far as a Premier League investigation is concerned now there is a lot of pressure coming onto the Premier League from other clubs, you know, Manchester United and Liverpool do not like Manchester City and Chelsea uh, because of the different ownership models, because uh, Manchester City and Chelsea's owners are, are quite happy just to focus on winning trophies and they're, they're pretty chilled when it comes to making money uh, out of football. So, um, yeah, and, and there's also been uh, the, the fact that these clubs have also been quite hostile to uh, the, the potential takeover at mm-hmm. Newcastle because could be another another uh owners with open wallets which which goes against the grain of of those profit maximizers. so that's where we appear to be um whether this uh whether this case has been held has been judged we, we don't know because it's all it appears to be somewhat secretive um but uh I mean, the, the the two journalists involved are you know, pretty senior guys very experienced Um, And Nick Harris was talking about the FFP issues. Tarek Panja, who's got the benefit of uh, being able to work for The New York Times and therefore is is a little step further away from uh, some of the pressures domestically. Um, he, He put in a very interesting article today. Um so that that's where we are where this goes forwards uh, I think it will take it will progress at a glacial pace mm. uh, given uh, the, the amount of time it's taken to to get an answer as to whether the Newcastle potential bidders can buy the club Sheffield Wednesday players have not been
2: paid again. That's happened so often. It's in a different font every time producer guy cuts and pays it in. Um, (laughs) It it must be getting so wearing for the players as well, Kira. But it's, again, April and May, I believe they weren't paid. Two months? Or
1: March and April? March and April. That that, that does appear to be the case. And and it it does seem confusing. I think the players have been partly paid. um, If... If the stories historically are correct, what the club does is it pays them the first seven thousand pounds per week. And I know there's gonna be people listening going, Well, that's okay. They they don't need anymore. And and I'm sure there'll be Sheffield Wednesday fans saying on the basis of the way that they've played this season, they probably don't deserve any more. Um, but based on my calculations the average pay for a Sheffield Wednesday player is £17,000 a week so there are substantial amounts not being going into people's bank accounts they do have obligations and also the the club the club signed these contracts so to to turn around and say well we're not going to pay you at all um isn't great uh Sheffield Wednesday this weekend um and and, yeah. We've we've spoken before you know, when we we're talking about the the, the Super League issue. Um, relegation can be just as exciting as promotion. You know, this weekend in yeah. the Championship, mm. you know, Sheffield Wednesday versus Derby is going to be a fantastic match. It's going to be full of tension, mm. and Rotherham could escape as well. Yeah, so you know, yeah. there's there's a lot taking place. Um, and uh, you know what what how would you feel if you were a Sheffield Wednesday player who hasn't been paid? Uh, the full full sum for March hasn't been paid the full sum for April um is out of contract in June and hasn't been offered a new contract are you going to give 100% because if you you get one tackle wrong and do your cruciates in you you've got no work from from you know from the start of next football season you've not been paid I think it's it cannot have a positive impact upon the 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 mental state and the preparation of the players because yeah, they've they've got other commitments, they've got family who'll be going this isn't acceptable, they're their agents chipping away. Um I, I do I do not think this is good preparation for Sheffield Wednesday um in their in, in their their attempts to avoid relegation.
2: It also <clears throat> sometimes baffles me, Kieran that football clubs don't seem to realise that they are subject to the same employment rules as everybody else, and it's unlawful not to pay your staff. It's as, it's as simple as that. I mean, whatever excuse you come up with, it, it's it, it you don't pass problems down to the employees. And again, as you say, many people quite rightly will say, "Well, if I was getting paid seventeen grand a week, I'd be happy with seven, But they wouldn't. No, yeah. they simply wouldn't, because yeah? it's it's what they're contractually obliged to to be paid. It's what they expect to be paid, and it's it's they they've worked their finances out. Accordingly, if you, you know, God forbid, if you send your kids to p- private school because you're near, you're, you're getting seventeen thousand pound a week, then that's a problem. It's a first world problem, I know, but as you say, it's something that will weigh on a player, and also, players don't like people taking the piss out of them. That's essentially what's happening here. Um, yeah. Kieran, I'm intrigued to know the answer to this next question: Is Preston North End are challenging the EFL's decision to secure a funding package worth more than one hundred million pound? with the investment arm of American insurance giant MetLife. I would love to know why they are challenging that.
1: Well, um, the the argument put forward by Preston is that they have uh, acted in a sensible manner historically – They've uh, they've not overspent too much. They do have a, a benefactor owner, as do most clubs in the championship, in the shape of a guy called Trevor Hemmings. But what the EFL has done is that they have borrowed from this American bank called MetLife, they borrowed £117.5 million. And this money, in theory, is being used to pay outstanding employment taxes, which are now due to the government. Preston's concern is... What happens if one of these clubs then defaults on the loan? Because it would appear that the default would have to be paid out of EFL central funds. Now, the the EFL, we've got a £117.5 million loan. The EFL annual TV deal is worth 119 million. So if you've got you know a, oh, a couple wow. of these clubs defaulting, yeah. who ends up paying? Well, Preston say yeah, we've run a tight ship. We've not recruited players because we couldn't afford to. We we didn't want to overspend. Other clubs could potentially who have not run themselves in in such a, a financially restrained manner uh, are now taking money from these loans, and um, if they don't repay, then. We, Preston, ultimately are going to have to go and pay a share out of this. And oh, by the way, clubs in League One and League Two, who you don't get a lot of money to begin with. You're on the hook for this as well. Um, so Preston have expressed their dissatisfaction, and I must say I, I thought the Premier League was guaranteeing this loan in some way, but perhaps they're not. Uh, they're not guaranteeing the default issues. Uh, so there's five other clubs in the Championship who have not taken the loans, um, and um, they apparently are taking the advice of uh, the ultimate. Uh, lawyer when it comes to football our very good friend Nick DeMarco, and you know if there's ever somebody you want on your side in a football dispute it's uh it is Nick you know he's got a he's got a fantastic track record um you know I think in the in, in the 15 or 20 minute conversation we had with him on the podcast I think I learned more about law than I have done in the rest of my life he's mm. he's a very measured uh very knowledgeable individual and and he's um, acting on behalf of Preston to make su- well to try to ensure that they do not suffer financially due to the largesse of others. I'm intrigued
2: by that, Kieran, because my accountant Bobby Numbers um, always always has told me never never borrow money to pay tax of any sort. Despite the fact that many many case workers at Fleetwood and Sutton HMRC have always said to me, "We'll just borrow it." Um, but that's, I've always been told that, that was it's not a good idea to borrow money to pay any sort of tax, and yet here they are merrily borrowing money to pay tax.
1: Yes, well, I mean, I think the, the sums outstanding um, were uh, part of the Premier League package. So the Premier League has offered grants of £50 million pounds to clubs in League 1 and 2, and they offered, I think it was around about £150 million, or it could, be, it could be a wee bit more, to the EFL clubs in the championship in the sense that they they said that they would be the loan guarantors which should allow the EFL to borrow money at a cheaper rate. And I think that the, the Premier League might have committed to pay some of the interest on those loans. So um, in terms of your personal taxes, it, it could be that it works out that you pay a lower punitive interest rate to HMRC in respect of taxes than the interest rate that you would borrow from a commercial bank, but these 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 figures could be reversed um, on on the on the case of football clubs um, because the the loan is effectively at a, at a very cheap rate of interest from the Premier League. Yeah, we've uh, Fleetwood and Sutton and
2: I have come to a rapprochement now, Kieran. We just <laughs> we, we muddle through these days. We're we're on such good terms we don't do anything formally now. It's, it's like they'll phone up occasionally say, "Have you got any money?" And I say, "No, I haven't." All right, <laughs> we'll speak to you at Christmas. Um, this final story, Kieran, um, saddened me a little bit, I have to say. Um, later Orient have cut ties with their women's team after six years, ostensibly to set up their own side, which is a slightly odd issue, isn't it?
1: Yes, Um well, from what I can make out here, um, that there was a women's team called Kick United. Yes.
2: Became... Who uh,
1: at, at at some point, either they approached Orient or Leighton Orient or Leighton Orient approached them to becoming the Leighton Orient women's club. But they were still relatively independent of the club itself. So they, they wore the club crest and they wore the club shirt. Um, and Leighton Orient have had a think about things and, they are not comfortable about any team, whether that's a a women's team or a youth team or a a fan section team, who are independent of the club itself and using the club's name. So they therefore uh, have been in contact with the Leighton Orient women's team, and have said, you know, as from effectively the end of this season, we're going to have to go our separate ways. We want to set up a, a women's team. We want to set up a, a women's academy from about the age of nine to to try to push things through. So um, the, the Leighton Orient women's team, or the, the the old one, as it were, I think they were in the fourth tier. Mm. Um, they were unhappy uh, with this and. It looks as if somewhere along the line, you know, I've I've seen press releases from both parties. There has been some breakdown in communication. It's it's not a blame game here. Um, And uh, it looks as if the Leighton Orient uh, men's team version of the women's team, i.e. the official Leighton Orient women's team, will be starting off next season in the sixth tier so it does therefore mean that there is a football team that is effectively looking for for a name. So it, it could be that there are some non-league clubs or it could be that they go back to being kick United. But uh, they seem to be fairly sore about what's happened. Leighton Orient say, well, you know, we, we did give you notice. We have been trying to get in contact. We were asking you for a budget and you, you didn't set us a budget for the season. And in the end, we got a bit fed up. So Trying to get to the bottom of this, I think, is uh, is difficult. Um, you know, there are there are pluses and minuses on both sides. It's it's just sad at a time when uh, you know women's football is is really on such a rise mm. that, uh, you know, that that there has been a dispute and uh, you know there are unhappy people at the end of it. Yeah,
2: also, also slightly odd because Leighton Orient said, "Don't worry, we won't poach players." Which, in a way, makes it even worse because the, the women that have been playing for Leighton Orient for six years now, have got no chance to play for the the new official Leighton Orient, if you like. So that wasn't necessarily a good thing. It's just it's and it's odd as well because Leighton Orient are a team we've always spoken about in glowing terms as well. So as you say, it's just sort of it's slightly upsetting. But um, but I've been I've been a I've been an emotional wreck all weekend to be perfectly honest, Kieran. <laughs> anything set me off this weekend? <laughs> um, the last four weeks. I think we can agree, Kieran, have been turbulent ones for football, but have highlighted the potential for fans' activism like never before. So it seemed like a good time to speak to Amanda Jack, who's a fans' advocate at the Football Supporters' Association. And this is an interview that's slightly longer than normal. It could have been twice as long as this, Kieran, because we got so engrossed in it. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us, um, especially, as I'm guessing... Since around lunchtime on Sunday, your phone has probably been going quite a lot.
0: It has indeed, Kevin. Yes, I've had quite a few messages from people saying, "I went on the pitch at Old Trafford. Am I going to go to prison?" Of oh, that really? kind of ilk. Yes.
2: Oh, really? And it's um, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the media response immediately afterwards, I thought, was quite mature in that they were condemning. The one or two people who did go too far, but actually very understanding of why the demonstration was taking place in the first place.
0: Absolutely. And the whole point of a protest is to disrupt. And yeah. that aim was achieved. Um, I mean, obviously, Kevin, nobody in their right mind, no reasonable person is going to condone the bottle throwing or, you know, no. behaviour like that, which is just you know, totally unnecessary and absolutely not representative of the behaviour of the vast majority of the Man United fans at that protest. But um, it's always the way, though, isn't it, whether the protest is about football club owners or education, the university fees.
2: Mm.
0: Invariably, if there are a handful of isolated incidents in otherwise good behaviour, that is what the media always hone in on. Mm. Rather than concentrate on on the main point and ultimately a successful protest.
2: In your experience, Amanda, will there be people looking to make examples of the one or two fans who did misbehave?
0: I suspect so. Greater Manchester Police have come out very, very strongly already um, and and have said that they are looking for the people involved in violent disorder, which is one of the most serious charges, um, public order charges that anybody can face. I think there's just one more above that, which is riot. So the fact that they are talking about violent disorder does potentially mean that, yes, there will be some people looking at quite serious charges
2: because Greater Manchester Police have always been um, very sensitive about football fans especially foreign football fans walking through the city anyway haven't they so they've always been making an effort to try and Keep football fans off the streets for the safety of other citizens. It always amazes me that football fans are not considered citizens in these situations.
0: <laughs> Don't even get me started on that one. Otherwise, you'll still be recording in about seven hours' time. Oh, sure enough. Um, Good. Well, but yeah, you, you're absolutely spot on. It uh, and we saw this as well with um, COVID and lockdown. Mm. Notwithstanding the fact that you know the, the population as a whole overwhelmingly abided by the rules and regulations, stayed indoors and stayed indoors. There was quite a lot of, you know, completely unfounded and evidence-free hysteria around the idea that football fans might turn up at their stadiums. Oh. So everyone's going to have to play in neutral grounds or grounds 300 miles away from where they live to stop this happening. And I was, Reading all this, absolutely scratching my head, thinking where does this come from and why have we got this sort of parallel or or rather tiered system whereby the general public, as I said, you know, are abiding by the regulations, doing what they're told. But there's this school of thought that thinks football fans won't, even though they already are.
2: It's still... A mystery to me, and Kieran will know what I'm about to say. The fact that Michael Gove got away with saying, well, they'll probably behave in the in the grounds and keep apart, but we can't trust them not to get drunk and hug each other on tubes and buses. It's like, really? it's I, I never understood. I remember I had a massive row of a policeman at Sheffield United once. So I said, any other day of the week, you and I would probably get on really well and then talk about football in the pub. But You're just getting really cross. And he was cross because it was foggy and he didn't think the game should go ahead. And he didn't think it would have gone ahead if we hadn't travelled up there. It's like, mate, we've spent the foot. it's taken us hours to get here. We don't particularly want to stand in the ground. Like, but anyway, as you say, let's not, let's not. But your instinct will be, I imagine, like all of us, that we'll be seeing more of these demonstrations in weeks to come.
1: Hi, I'm Steve Glamac and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights
0: Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. I think so, yes. I mean, we've seen the Chelsea fans, haven't we, um, gather outside Stamford Bridge. We've seen Arsenal fans, not so much with Liverpool fans because even though there were six clubs involved in the Super League, the dynamic at every club and their relationship with their supporters and what the supporters want from their clubs Mm. varies slightly. So we didn't really see anything at Anfield because the status quo is all right there which doesn't mean yes. the Spirit, frankly, aren't making their own demands, but they are not comparable to the, un- the happiness that Manchester United the, the, the fans Manchester, have got yeah. with their club. But if I may, just just sort of winding back to the point you made about GMP not, not being happy with fans on the street in case the public gets scared. Um, mm. GMP have actually improved massively when it comes to policing football matches themselves, but there's this... in uh, and it's not unique to Manchester, um, Greater Manchester, please. But I think there's just this inherent nervousness around groups of people and protest, and that is escalated when they are football fans. Mm. And there's also the, the dynamic going on in the country at the moment with protest and this new proposed policing bill that gives the police the power, you know, Absolutely more powers yeah. than they have already to stop protests to. Um, arrest people if they're causing a nuisance or being too noisy and reading the statement that GMP put out about the protests at Old Trafford was really interesting because they said you know we've had to pull police away from our offices away from frontline duties to deal with this and get help from neighbouring forces and I'm reading it Kevin and I'm thinking well policing a protest is surely part of your Frontline duty, anyway. Of course. And
2: yeah,
0: yeah. You, so, so I think that, I mean, obviously, we're here to talk about football, but I, as an aside, I think there's more to their response than just football. It, it, it's all about the politics at the moment around policing, protest, and what, football.
2: Kieran and I love talking about football, but unfortunately, Amanda, everything else gets in the way. Normally, it's finances, but I think most of the people listening to this will have experiences of of going to football games and not being happy about the way they've been treated. And you've you've sort of preempted my first big question, which was a, a general question. But I wanted to ask you, by using a quote of yours from 2017, which I found while I was researching for my book, And you said, it's too easy to stereotype and blame fans. There's too little scrutiny of draconian legislation directed at fans. And less scrutiny of how they may be policed and stewarded. So, clearly, from what you're saying, you don't think that's changed in the past four years. And notwithstanding Sussex Police planting weapons on Palace fans, obviously,
0: I, I, I think we we are slightly better than we were. I think mm. there is a bit more interest and there are some really good individual journalists out there who will ring me up every now and again and say, Look, I'm writing a column about policing or stewarding. Can you give me a quote?
1: Mm. And
0: I think w- with regard to the treatment of English fans abroad in Europe, the media are much better at covering that now and far more sympathetic and actually recognise that there are some countries where the police forces are absolutely brutal and think nothing of, you know, battening innocent people to within, I was going to say within an inch of their lives, but that's a bit of an exaggeration. But they're Mm. they're savage and they're brutal. And whereas a few years ago, the media would just, that their narrative would be, oh, English hooligans abroad, they not blatantly saying they get what they deserve, but kind of implying that, you know, it must be their fault for the police to have reacted in this way. But now there's a definite recognition that English fans abroad are more often than not more sinned against than sinners. Mm. But back to the UK, yes, there's still nowhere near the scrutiny that there should be, in my opinion. We will see as well, you know, with the Euros coming up, very soon, I will have money on a lot of local press printing police press releases verbatim about how football banning orders are going to be stopping yobs from going to Europe and hooligans. I mean, the police press um, releases won't use the terminology yobs and hooligans, but the, the media headlines, local media headlines, will say that. And that massively frustrates me, and I've written about it loads. You know, where 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 is the journalist in these journalists who are just reprinting a police press release? Mm. Why aren't they looking into football banning orders? Why aren't they actually investigating to see whether they're not whether they are effective or not? Why aren't they looking into the fact that the vast majority of people with a football banning order have got them for offences that are nothing to do with violence and disorder? Why aren't they looking at how the courts treat football fans? You know, all of those things are just not being covered in the way that they should be. And unfortunately, it's not too different when things go wrong at football matches. You know, thankfully, the instances are rare, but at least once or twice a season, there will be something happen, Mm. which ultimately might cause a poor reaction from supporters. But the headline will be, Supporters kick off at Stewards.
2: Uh, Always, yeah. But
0: they won't investigate that the supporters are kicking off in at Stewards because they are away fans and they turned up late through no fault of their own. And the club was woefully unprepared for five, six hundred fans turning up later than expected, tried to search everybody, didn't crowd manage them properly, were rude to them, pushed them around. So then, of course, that situation is going to get slightly mm. volatile. So those instances aren't investigated how they should be, in my view, because the narrative still, even with a disclaimer that we are in a better place, but the narrative is still football fans, hooligans, mm. yobs.
2: You're you're doing a really good job at preempting my questions because my next one was specifically about stewarding. but I just wanted to to mention that. Brighton uh, incident when Brighton fans blatantly uh, tried to frame Palace fans by by photographing weapons that hadn't been taken from them, and it, I was I was genuinely surprised that even even now, even only a couple of years ago, their, their narrative was still was that well everybody else other than football fans will believe that they had these weapons on. That's what they relied on. It's only because they were unlucky enough to come up against your organisation and my podcast that put in a Freedom of Information act, and also that one of the people that they corralled after the game was a Croydon uh, councillor, Tory, a Palace fan. And if, if those three things hadn't come together, the police would have got away with it. It really shocked me that their attitude was still, everybody else will believe that they're wrong, and so let's carry on with that narrative, even when they were confronted with the obvious truth and even when the lower-level policemen were happily admitting that they didn't know anything about this.
0: I know, and you're absolutely spot on. You know that that there is this complacency, I think, and I'm I'm not going to suggest it's conscious or deliberate. More subconscious, as mm. as you said, the assumption was we can say what we like and people will believe it. Mm. Can I but ask you? you sorry, sorry, you, you Amanda, wouldn't but- find that with any other group in society, I don't think. Mm.
2: Can I ask this specific question about uh, stewarding? Because it, it it seems increasingly that on a, a sort of ground level, policemen are, m- are more friendly. When Kieran and I were young football fans a long, long time ago, it was the police that you had trouble with. The stewards tended to be f- volunteers from the clubs and, and friendly. But increasingly, I find that fans are complaining about stewarding more than anything else. For example, just before lockdown, the last away game I was at, there was an issue where stewards got quite hostile to a female fan because she didn't want to be searched by a male steward. And it, it wasn't handled particularly well, and it escalated quite quickly. So what what is the legal status of stewards as to what they're actually allowed to do and not to do? Because I'm assuming most stewards are now contractors, aren't they, from, from outside the club?
0: Yes, they are, and and that's part of the problem, um, that they are contractors. And also as well <laughs> – You know, who who would be a steward? The pay isn't very good. The conditions aren't very good. And, you know, there's no escaping from the fact that sometimes they will be dealing with very unpleasant or drunk people. It's a difficult job. Mm. But it's not, I don't think, unreasonable to say that, you know, a steward's day might start at midday at Crystal Palace then his shift will be over there and then he'll jump on the train and go across to East London and do a shift at the London Stadium. And then when that's over, he might go to the O2 Arena and do a shift there. Mm, yeah. And I, I think, well, first of all, for, for many, many years, as, as we all know, that the police have been inside of our stadiums. Mm. And whilst they still are, they are in far, far, far fewer numbers, mm. if at all than they used to be so I think part of the overall stewarding problem is that for many years clubs have thought um, we, we've got police in our stadiums to back up the stewards we don't need to invest in the stewards because the police are there if you add that to the fact that with some exceptions I don't think that clubs necessarily despite all the sort of glossy brochures and the rhetoric on a match day I'm not convinced that clubs are seeing supporters as paying customers mm. who deserve and pay for a good experience mm. so by that I mean you know not a red carpet or a sir or a madam. But just common decency, you know, being spoken to nicely, mm. asked if you where you come from, you know, are you looking forward to the game? What, mm. what do you think the score will be? You know, it's football. There mm. are a million and one ways to make small talk around football. All of those things make you feel valued. Yes. Yeah. And that, in turn, if you feel valued, you you will respect the steward. So if that steward then a bit later on asks you to do something you're far more inclined to do it because you've already formed a relationship with him, albeit a very fleeting one and a temporary one, but you are going to cooperate with him because you've clocked him as a decent bloke. Mm. (laughs) But when you've got people that are there on crap money who might not like football? Who might rely, you know, know nothing about football fan culture or behaviour or crowd management? They are told to stand in a, on a turnstile and search people. Mm. Where where is their incentive to inter- interact with you and engage with you? Mm. It, it's just not going to be there, is it necessarily? Mm. But but why is that? Why why should you or me or anybody who's listening to this? have that experience when they arrive at their football club, Mm. particularly as an away fan. You know, Mm. it's critical that home fans are treated well, just as critical that away fans are treated well, even if they're only going to be there for 90 minutes and not come back for a year. Mm. Because ultimately, it all boils down to, that the dynamic and behavior and crowd management and forming that relationship where you're going to respond to a steward whose job is to enforce the ground regulations.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I can only talk for Sellers Park, obviously, but what they do there, which is eminently sensible is that they have the same stewards on the same turnstiles every game. So you do build up a relationship and they do start the conversation <laughs> by saying, Oh, here he comes, here's trouble. Or I've heard all the jokes before about being searched, so, but at least it helps. And it, and it, it stops them being the focus of tension if there's a massive queue to get in. And there's always a massive queue to get in because the infrastructure at Sellers Park isn't conducive to modern football. But I'm I'm still... But in, legally, in terms of what they can and can't do, I mean, presumably, that the female Palace fan who didn't want to be searched by a male steward was entirely within her rights, wasn't she, I would have thought?
0: Being searched is a condition of entry.
2: Oh, OK, Right.
0: So, you know, whether you're a a 25-year-old woman, a four-year-old child, or a 90-year-old man, that is, you know, that that is a term and condition that you have agreed to.
2: Right.
0: Um, I sympathise with that lady. But you're right, you know, they should have anticipated female supporters because after all, we do go to football and have done for some time now. Yeah. And had, I mean, personally, if it was just like a quick check down my arms, you know, that kind of search, Mm. I wouldn't object. But I, uh, which isn't to say I don't sympathize with a lady who would prefer to be searched by a female steward. Mm. But yeah, of course, clubs should have female stewards on hand. And the male stewards should have been a lot more understanding and said, yeah, hang on a minute, love. I'll just go and find one of my female colleagues to search you.
2: The the problem with talking to a proper fans uh, caseworker, uh, Amanda, is I discover I'm not as good a pub advocate as I thought I was when it comes to law around football. What are the main other issues, Amanda, that you get asked about on a a daily basis as a caseworker for the Football Supporters Association?
0: What do we do about fan behaviour? I think we've all seen, haven't we, there's been a definite increase in concourse behaviour, you know, with fans jumping around and throwing beer everywhere. Mm. And I absolutely love watching the videos of those on YouTube because Mm. it looks amazing and no doubt is amazing to be in the middle of that, but not so amazing if you don't want to be. Mm. So, you know, I've I've had lots of emails from people saying, went to the game at the weekend, took my grandson, couldn't go on the concourse at halftime because there's a load of lads jumping around throwing beer everywhere. And you know what? I've really sympathised with them. Those lads should not be. However good a spectacle spectacle it is and however much fun they're having, it's that sort of behaviour that needs to be managed properly. So you are not alienating the supporters that are taking part in it, but you are making them recognise that football isn't just about them. Mm. It's about everybody. Um, in, in fact, I, I tweet about it every now and then, well, not so much recently, but before lockdown, I did put out the odd tweet, you know, that, that said, you know, just be mindful of other supporters on the concourse. Mm. Don't throw your beer around, please, because, you know, aside from anything, it could... You know, if the stewards wade in to stop it, then you're going to probably end up getting yourself arrested. Hmm. And inevitably, I'll I'll get DMs on Twitter telling me that I'm old and <laughs> football isn't for me, and it's culture, and I don't know what I'm talking about. And I just laugh because yeah. you know they're coming from like teenagers in the main, but. It's a relatively new thing, isn't it? I don't remember that 20-odd years ago, do you? I,
2: I, I'm too fond of beer to start throwing it around anywhere, to be perfectly honest, Amanda. But it, it's interesting though, because that's where I do feel sorry for stewards as well, Because especially when you go to away games. And, of course, we all love you know, with the 3,000 Palace fans at Watford. You love the fact that you're on your feet for 90 minutes, but you can see the stewards talking to each other and say, well, I'm not going to be the one to tell them to sit down they're not doing any harm but again in the concourse at half time you can understand why fans would be because rela- i know a lot of the palace fans and i know they're they're boisterous but they're not trouble but to a steward they look like trouble so you can sometimes sympathize with them can't you you're absolutely right and there is there isn't enough um respect's not the right word but there isn't enough awareness of other fans around them it's not it's not how it was 30 40 years ago when it was just a dads and lads game it's it's it's, fa- it's for everybody now was how it should be and you're right, there should be more awareness of, of what's going on around. Um, can we just... But,
0: but this, this goes back as well to, to stewarding and crowd management and training and understanding of how to manage a crowd. And what I would do if I was a safety officer, I'd handpick some stewards that have got brilliant communication skills, probably women, because I think, generally speaking, men... Re- are more respectful of women. Yeah. You know, if, if, if it's some sort of like, it's a man thing, isn't it? If, if some like big beefy steward that's six foot four tall and wide towering over people saying, why you behave today, that's not going to end well, is it? But if you get a nice, I'm almost reluctant to say this, mumsy type, <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, <laughs> you know, the,
0: the matriarchal figure... Standing at the away turnstiles. we all know who the lads are that are going to be behaving in this way, don't mm. we?
2: Yes. We so do. she
0: greets them. All right, lads, looking yeah. forward to the game, blah, blah, blah. Just to let you know that my safety officer really doesn't like the jumping around showing his beer. I know you've been... Is you all right? Neither does your dog, by the sounds of it. <laughs>
1: Is that fiddly, Kieran? Oh, yeah, yes, on. yes. Finley, Finley has just seen a guy with a skip arriving in our front garden.
2: Okay. Oh, well, Finley's quite a posh dog, Amanda. Finley wouldn't like a skip arriving in the garden in Sussex. We, we... Would, would
0: he not? No, Finley. Finley is <laughs> very ferocious.
2: Yeah, Finley's not as ferocious as he sounds, but he, 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 he likes he doesn't like the attention that we're getting. He likes to get involved in the pub. But, you, but you, you know, your point about women stewards is absolutely right. Because in my other world, in theatre and comedy, increasingly, it's it's women that you see on the door of theatres of comedy. Because as you say, not only are men more respectful for them, but just women are better at diffusing situations, I find. Whereas men tend to escalate at problems sometimes. Women are better at spotting trouble and cutting it off, I, I've always believed.
0: Uh, I, I think broadly speaking, I mean, there's always exceptions to the rule, mm. aren't there? But I think broadly speaking, you're right. In, in fact, some of the best stewarding I've ever seen, I was um, at, because I'm a West Ham supporter, and this is many, many years ago at Spurs away. And um, they scored against us, and I can't remember who it was he scored because I sort of like, blocked things like that out of my memory. Of course. But the, the score of the goal came over and sort of like, celebrated in front of us away fans. So yeah. you can just imagine, can't you, the reaction from yep. the West Ham faithful. A couple of the blokes there decided that they, you know, that they were going to go and rip this player's head off. So he started to charge down the steps. This female steward just stepped out of nowhere; didn't even see her. She was about five foot five, and she just stood in the middle of her steps with her arms out. Uh, these two blokes, three blokes, put on the brakes. <laughs> Stopped in their tracks, told this player exactly what they thought of him over this woman's outstretched arms, then said sorry about that, love, and went back to their seats. Yeah, and it was just absolutely brilliant. But, it, but if you would have like sent in the response team, you know the big burly blokes, that inevitably would have ended badly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is sort of where I think clubs that there's that they're all about or not all about but there's too much about seeing people um fans and again particularly way fans as potential public order problems mm. and not customers
2: yeah, it's, it's-
0: so i think if, if if i think safety officers could have a lot to learn from corporate their colleagues in corporate hospitality mm. um you know
2: Sorry, sorry, Amanda. I'm just conscious of time as I've, I'm already ditching loads of questions because it's already turned into a long interview, which is brilliant. But I, it, it's it, technically it's wonderful how West Ham are doing this season. But my best friend is a West Ham season ticket holder, and I publicly tipped them to be relegated on radio, so I'm not I'm not a happy bunny about how well they're doing. Just I just want to talk to you a couple of bring it back to issues around the Super League and what's happening uh, in the future, Amanda. I mean, it's been. The last four weeks have been incredible. In terms of highlighting the power that fans actually have in the game, it's been wonderful. But for me, it's been tempered by a slight frustration that fans seem to have been able to scupper the Super League but just couldn't do anything to save clubs like Bury or Macclesfield. It's it's brilliant to see what happens when you can get fans mobilised, but it just doesn't always work, does it?
0: No, it doesn't. And... You know, supporter groups comprise people from all backgrounds, all walks of life. Ultimately, they are volunteers mm. with their jobs, families and everything else. I think it was serendipitous. Can I say that? Of course you I can. I like that word.
2: Yeah, I can't. That <laughs> the
0: <laughs> That the six groups involved in the Super League, sorry, the six clubs all have brilliant supporter groups mm. with brilliant people in them. Clever, talented, intelligent, articulate, articulate, mm. organized people. And maybe other clubs elsewhere don't necessarily have that. Or there's local issues or because, you know, people are people, aren't they, ultimately? And I think there can sometimes be this sort of utopian idea around football. Mm. That supporters groups can come in and we can do this and we can do that. But very obviously, they're only as good as the people within them. And I'm absolutely not saying groups, clubs elsewhere don't have good groups, but that inevitably, that there can be a lot of factors into why they haven't been able to achieve the saving of their club. Mm. Because fans fight within themselves as well. They
2: do, unfortunately, as we're seeing at, at, at Bury as well. And I, I suppose as well as the lack of media attention as well for you know clubs like berry and, and macclesfield aren't sexy like the top 6 are but I, I i don't recall in in my entire lifetime of supporting football i don't recall any weekend or any football news story that galvanised as much interest as that as that super league story i mean it's incredible to watch it unfold as well and also it's one of those things where the rest of the nation suddenly realize the scope and the width of the amount of of people who support Football clubs, I always use the example to Kieran of the Pawson's Arms, a tiny pub in Thornton Heath where we're re we before Palace games. And, and yeah, there's, there's a couple of bus drivers and a cab driver, but there's accountants, there's, uh, there's a, a, a judge, there's a theatre producer. Football fans come from all walks of life now and, and when they come together and pitch those skills in together, it, as we've seen, it has an amazing effect.
0: It absolutely does. Yes. And I think that clubs as well. I mean, sidestepping slightly, um, one, one of our aims is to have a supporter on every safety advisory group. And oh, okay. a safety advisory group is hosted by a local authority and comprises people from the Sports Ground Safety Authority, the police, St John's Ambulance, the fire service, the highways department, you know, a- anybody that's involved in the safe running of a football match. And we think and have done for some time now that supporters should be represented represented on the safety advisory group mm. because, after all, nobody knows supporters better than supporters. Mm. And aside from anything, we can give a very different angle and a, and a unique perspective to things. Mm. We are still hearing, you know, from safety advisory groups around the country, oh, no, we can't have supporters because... Um, they Won't know how to conduct themselves, Jeez. or they might breach confidentiality, mm. which again goes back, Kevin, doesn't it? To what you said at the very start of, of this of how football fans are, are seen as some sort of other, yes, this homogenous mass. Yeah. We're not seen as judges, and solicitors, and accountants, and chief executives, mm. and doctors, and nurses, and all of those things, which you know each individual profession carries a different and valuable skill set we're just not seen like that and it baffles me mm.
2: uh, talking of representation Amanda our our government with their newfound love of football has announced a fan-led review which is going to be headed by uh Tracy Krauts, the sports minister have the SFA been involved in setting the parameters for that inquiry or will they be
0: Our chief exec, Kevin Miles, has a very good relationship with um, Tracy Crouch. I
2: know, Kevin. So,
0: yes, I'm sure that he will be working incredibly hard behind the scenes to make sure that um, everything goes as far as possible our way. Mm -hmm. And when I say our, I don't just mean the Football Supporters Association as an organisation. I mean us and all of our members and the supporter groups who are broadly unified on where we should be in terms of regulation and so on.
2: Mm, I'm I'm guessing we won't get a new fan ownership model out of it, but we might get an independent regulator. What's the most you think we can hope for?
0: Uh, That the recommendations are accepted by supporters and implemented, Mm. whatever those recommendations might be.
2: Mm. Amanda, it's been a brilliant to talk to you. I, I genuinely could uh, talk to you all day and there's a lot of things I haven't got around to asking you. Uh, but it's been lovely to hear from you. And, and I think as the fan-led review unfolds, we'll be getting you back and certainly uh, getting people from the FSA back as well. Give my regards to Kevin Miles, who I've known for some time, uh, and to everybody at your organisation, which started a lot of our lists as well. I mean, literally started as... as Two two men and a dog in a in a back room, and is now a brilliant, brilliant organisation. But also, it's it's slightly unfortunate that we still need it, isn't it? It's slightly unfortunate that even in this day and age, we're still talking about the same issues that we've been talking about as football fans for for such a long time. I I tell my son, my son's twenty five, and I tell him the way we were treated sometimes back in the late seventies and early eighties. And it's just like I am a good guardian reading liberal, but I firmly believe that sometimes if you keep treating people like animals, they will occasionally behave like them. Yeah, you know, I always tell them about the special we got a special to Wrexham once, and it was a it was a normal train but with a coach added on for us, and we we were padlocked in, and there was no toilet. And it's like my and my son doesn't believe it, but that's how we were. There were several police forces, West Midlands, South Yorkshire. You just didn't look forward to going to, to games in those places because. If I went as a tourist to Sheffield on a Thursday or Friday, I'd be, I'd be treated with the utmost respect. Well, if I go on a Saturday with a palace scarf on, you, you just, you're just terrified until you get home, basically. And it's, it's not how it should be. But unfortunately, we still need the Football Supporters Association and uh, you have uh, the respect and admiration of both Kieran and I. So thank you very much.
0: That's very kind.
2: Now, sometimes, Kieran, I, I, I worry... If we have a guest whose main focus isn't football finance, if you like, isn't the, the price of football, I sometimes worry that listeners will be wondering why we're talking to them. But in this occasion, any fears disappeared after two or three minutes because it was fascinating what Amanda had to say. And also, you know, it's it, it, you and I have very romantic views of football fans and their place in football culture. But you know, Amanda is somebody who's working with fans every day to settle the everyday arguments that fans all over the country are having with football clubs and she's doing a remarkable job.
1: Yeah, she she is uh, absolutely amazing. I've uh, I know one or two people that have been helped by Amanda and and they speak of her in glowing terms and you, you're absolutely right Kevin. It is slightly outside of our normal sphere, but ultimately I think you know we say that this is a football finance show. This is this is a football finance show for fans and yeah. you know, I, I've been you know, I, I, I've been in a pitch invasion. Uh, you know, I've I've been stopped and searched by police officers and th- and these yeah. are things that are happening. And if they can happen to a you know, very, very very, very dull, middle aged, teetotal chartered accountant, yeah. then they can happen to people who are half my age and perhaps a bit, you know, less uh, less laid back than me. And these people, and we all need uh, the, the the belief that there'll be somebody standing up for us. And uh, you know, if anybody has ever had any issues in terms of the way that they have been treated at a football match, remember you are your citizens first, and you are your football fans second, and and you you are entitled to the support of the the, the, uh, the legal legal form. So you know, FSA Fair Cup on Fair Cup on Twitter. That that's Amanda. Um, and she is she's absolutely brilliant. Uh, you know anybody that's had any dealings with her will, will confirm that.
2: I, I also like the fact that Amanda's quite happy to admit that some football fans are idiots. Basically, which every now and again you and I forget that, Kieran, of our romantic views. Yeah, sometimes they're idiots because yeah, sometimes they do bounce up and down in crowded concourses, throwing beer everywhere. You're right. I also like the fact, Kieran, that you're implying your pitch invasion was accidental.
1: No, no, my, my pitch invasion was uh, abs- absolutely on purpose. Uh, April nineteen ninety six. Uh, you know, our, our ground had been sold. Uh, we yeah. we'd nowhere to play with the people that had sold the ground had changed the constitution for the club, and, and we got the match called off. Um, and and if that makes me part of a mob. Then then so be it. You know, the fact that I've got a football club to support today to me means that the you know, the classic case of the the means justifies the ends and, and so mm. on.
2: Although there is nothing sadder than the sight I've seen a couple of times with people invading the pitch, looking around expecting to see hundreds of people behind them and everyone else is just sitting resolutely in the standstill still, <laughs> going, What's Terry doing? Um <laughs> St- streaking normally. You no know, you've not done that, Kieran, have you? <laughs>
1: no.
2: All right, I'm still reeling from your admission earlier on just before we started recording that you used to be in Harry Krishna. Well,
1: I was going through a vegetarian phase and this seemed to sort of take it to one step further. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a lover, not a fighter, uh, Kevin, so I thought this was a, a way of you know, taking it to, a, to another level. I believe that's
2: still the caption under your wanted poster in Moscow, lover, not fighter. <laughs> <laughs> wanted for loving. <laughs> If anything, Kieran, that's your only crime—loving too much. Um, <laughs> thanks to everyone who's become a patron of our pod via the Patreon site, including Andy Myers, Nick Parkhouse, Ricky Prince, and Matt Butland, who says thank you for all. Thank you all for such an entertaining and insightful look into the world of football finance, even if it does come from a Brighton fan. Keep up the good work. Um, I, I'll make this promise now to all patrons that I will be less hungover. Next time I do this pod. <laughs> and considering it's three days since my birthday party, that's some going. Also, Kanad Akut, I hope I pronounced that right, Canad, who says, I'd like to send my support to all fans of the so called Big Six, especially Man United fans. We foreign United fans completely stand with those protesting that the Glazers around Old Trafford, we hope for change. Again, uh, I should we should acknowledge, Kieran, the many, many overseas football fans who took exception to us saying that they were part of the problem and that clubs were using them as their excuse for uh, doing all sorts of things. We apologise to all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution, go to patreon.com forward slash priceoffootball. And, of course, if you have any questions for our next pod, which will be on Monday, uh, it's questions at priceoffootball.com. And, Kieran, before we go, I hear your audio book is out. That's a clever pun. I, oh, the, <laughs> I, I hear your audiobook is out any truth to the rumor karen it was simon callow who
1: read it <laughs> sadly not um <laughs> it, it was it was myself who had to do it um and i, I went into this recording studio and, and i met this guy called paul cheese who was the recording engineer um and i, and I said uh, I've I've never done. I've got no idea what I'm doing here. Um, and he says that's okay. The, the guy, the guy that did the last one, he didn't have a clue either. I said, well, that's okay. Who, who was he? He said, oh, it's Roger Daltrey. I'm going <laughs> Roger. <"Right." laughs> <laughs> I think I think, think he doesn't have any, he doesn't have anything to worry about. Uh, um, but yes, uh, the, the Price of Football book now does have an audio version for anybody who who would like to, to listen to it. And I can't think of a- any reason why it's eight hours and 50 minutes of me talking about amortization. Wow. Yeah. It's
2: With that- a- I'll tell you who wants to listen, Kieran. HGV drivers on long journeys, that's who wants to listen. <laughs>
1: they're,
2: they're, they're, the audiobook, they're amazingly popular. The issue I had when I recorded mine, which is uh, – I don't know how long yours take. Mine was four days. You talk about first world problems, Kieran. I don't think – I don't think some of our listeners realise how difficult it is <laughs> to sit in a studio having tea and Kate's brought to you every Um but the, the my sound engineer had no interest in football whatsoever, never been to a game, couldn't understand, couldn't understand what the fuss was all about. Uh, it made the days it was lovely, he was a nice, It was a nice bloke, and I got no interest in Dungeons & Dragons. So there was there was no there was no meeting in my head, and every now and again I'd, I'd have to look up and say, to him, I've finished that chapter now," and he'd put his book down and I'd go, "All oh, right, great." <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, um, so it's, I'm glad your uh, book is available. It's it's a very popular, a lot of people want to to listen rather than read, Kieran. But I I would like to have be been there as you read out some of the facts and figures and tables.
1: Yes, that was very confusing, even for me.
2: <laughs> and all right, and on that, though, we shall say goodbye. And I, I promise you, I will straighten myself out by the time we record the next pod and remember the names of the Tottenham strikers. Uh,
1: bye. The price I for the photo all.